From Future Founders HQ in the podcasting studio at 1871 in downtown Chicago, this is The Insider. Your fast pass for the latest news, tools, and debates for young entrepreneurs. Be sure to leave feedback about your experience with us today in our survey at the bottom of the e-pass. Thanks for listening. And we're live. Back. <laughs> Here we are. Episode 401. Carson with... and Adam, uh, great to be on again, man, for our weekly chat. Yes. I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to be here today to discuss fundraising topics um, with you. If you could give the audience a quick overview, um, who you are, what do you do, why do you do it? Of course, yeah. So I'll start, I'll start off this podcast the way Carson and I start off every one of our pods. And uh, I'm Adam. I'm, uh, I live in St. Louis. I'm from Boston originally and uh, a proud alumni of the Future Founders Fellowship. Love Future Founders. Uh, love Fellowship. And my company, Check the Q, is a technology company that does spatial analytics. I mean, you guys know this. You listen to us talk every week about all kinds of stuff. So I'll throw it over to you, Carson. Why don't you do your usual spiel? Uh-huh. Spatial analytics. That's what you do? That's what we try to do. Okay. Uh, can't get perfection, but we do what we can. What about you, man? So, so I'm Carson. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Fan Food. It's an online mobile ordering app for fans at sporting events to order their favorite concessions directly from their phone and get it delivered to their seat, or they can order it um, through Express pickup lines. Um, so, can they? If I was sitting there, could I order a concession to someone else's seat? Like, mm-hmm. let's say I see someone I'm trying to pick up on a date. Yeah. No, okay. not not there yet. Not there yet. <laughs> but it's a good idea. Good idea. So talk to me. And again, this is totally speculative. But let's say I was single and really desperate. And so I go to the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's say it's a Cubs game. And I see uh, John Lester. You know, I'm from Boston. He used to be on the Red Sox. Now a great pitcher for the Cubs. And I decide I want to go home with John Lester. Could I get something delivered to him in the dugout? Hmm. No, I don't think you could. No, more no. of a V two release, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Right now, we're focused on the fans. That makes sense. Primarily, yeah. It's not called Lester Food for a reason, I guess. Right. Right. Maybe it should though. It's a good idea. I mean, I know we're supposed to talk about fundraising, but it's kind of turning into branding. But yeah, well, isn't that? Gotta give the people what they want. Hey, early on, fundraising is kind of branding, though. I mean, you kind of have to sell yourself and sell your story, right? It's really true. And that actually segues us nicely into our first uh, question from the audience. So first of all, as usual, we really appreciate you guys sending in your questions every week. And we're going to get to our first one here. So first question, Carson, I love what you've done with your hair. <laughs> looking so good considering you were in the military. That's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, talk about your personal branding when you started fundraising. How did you even know how to present yourself, especially because you're so young? AR670-1 um, in the military um, is, is, is a certain standard that you have to um, you know, live by when you're in the uniform and outside it. So, uh, you know, pushed over hair, it's part of it. Um, well, thanks for answering part one. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> so part two, how did, what, did you even think about branding yourself when you were initially fundraising? Is that something that? 
yeah mind yeah although my branding myself isn't like incredibly compelling um because uh what I, I guess it's not going to help move the deal. Let me just say that to get investor dollars, right? Because I'm a first time entrepreneur that's trying to start a technology company that has zero non-technical uh, skills. I went to a public university with a, and, and luckily got into the university with a shitty ACT score. Um, I studied finance. Like I'm, I, my my resume to attract investors wasn't the wasn't the greatest, but what did um, become part of my branding, um, you know, was what 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 I can pitch or what I'm confident to pitch is is my work ethic and and my leadership skills that I have developed while being in the military, um, and that's what I decided to build my my story around um, storytelling, right authentic storytelling and um humility and confidence is persistence that's what i that's what i focus my story my branding on early on and that's what i'll probably continue to um you know keep my because i'm I'm not going to be the smartest guy in the room but um I'm, I'm so incredibly fortunate now to have the opportunity to hire people who are smarter than me. It's actually kind of intimidating at times. I'm like, why are these people listening to me when they're a lot smarter? But here we are. I, I, I definitely can empathize with that. I, uh, I feel that way when I talk to almost any other person, regardless of their intelligence, but especially I, I definitely agree. Yeah, but you're also so witty, though. Like people don't know if you're like like you're very intelligent for how like witty you are. So like, yeah, you make people laugh, but everyone kind of was like, Oh, this, this dude's right, smart. Right. So let's, let's, let's focus here on fundraising. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's, let's break it in. Let's break it down. Let's here. Break it down. So, so let me go ahead. first. Cause I, where, where are we at? Okay. So real quick, give a quick overview of your, of your business. Uh, when did you get started? Where are you at today? Talk a little bit about, um, the technology you, you've built and the money you've raised to get there. Cool. So I started the business in my final semester at WashU. So this was the spring of 2017 and went full time on it after I graduated. So now we've been working on this business for around actually exactly two years. We have raised around $500,000 cumulatively. It's been almost entirely from, uh, angels and a couple larger investments i would say the average check size has been around seventy-five thousand dollars. wow and we are in the middle of a pivot right now so we're in a pretty interesting place where we've been dealing with a lot of uh part of the nuance i think you'd agree with this of managing investor relationships is making sure that no matter sort of the ups and downs or what the path the company is going on you're communicating proactively and transparently and I think I'll talk about that a little bit later, but that's part of what's enabled us to pivot with the support of our investors. So anyway, mm -hmm. so we've been around for about two years. We're pivoting now. We have six full-time employees based out of St. Louis, and we've raised around $500,000. So, but that, okay, so so you're at Wash U, you come, you, can you give me a, a 30 seconds how you came up with the idea? Real quick. Yep. And uh, so there's a class for entrepreneurs at WashU. You take it, you workshop an idea over the course of the semester with teams from other people in the class. 
And it actually wasn't even originally my idea to focus on airport wait times. I actually joined someone, I joined a friend's group. And his idea was, let's see if we can create an app that will tell travelers when they should go to the airport. So I was like, sounds reasonable. I'm mm-hmm. an anxious Jewish guy. I hate waiting. I love this information. Mm-hmm. So start working on it. We get to the end of the semester. And my friend was basically like, I don't really want to go full time on this. You know, he was going out to do incredible opportunity. And I was kind of like, ah, I actually think there's something here. So I took it and ran with it. And then we very quickly pivoted it to a B2B product selling data to airports and other stakeholders. But and when, so, so, so you, you started your, the last semester at WashU, at what point um, did you get your first, so this is a, a B2B platform. Um, when did you get your first product built? Whew. Oh man. In some ways we're still waiting for our first product to be built, but it really was, we had something to show. So this was the spring of 2017. We had something to show the spring of 2018. We thought we had something to show much sooner, but it turns out that, you know how it is in entrepreneurship, all these stops and starts. But we raised our first capital that fall of 2017. So yeah, let's talk about that though, right? So took you eight months close to a year to get something up and running. And I heard airport wait times from a class project. Okay. How much money exactly. did, how much money did it cost to, to build that first product? Cause this is what helped for the, for the people listening in the audience, this is, you know, I'm imagining that there's a lot of first time entrepreneurs that are listening to this and they have this cool idea. Technology is, really expensive how much did it cost you to get your first mvp up and running yeah no it is and honestly you guys write us in every week asking us to talk more about this so i'm glad carson brought it up so i would say that i am not the poster child for how to do it properly no none of us are yeah so i took over this project and now let's say we're like july of 2017 i'm not technical i majored in political science so, but I loved entrepreneurship. So I was bringing some small business acumen and I had a couple of engineers who were technical co-founders who ended up leaving the company shortly thereafter, who were maybe doing 10 or 15 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And did you the pay them? Less, say again? Did you pay them? They weren't paid, but they had equity in the company and we ended up resolving it through buying them out. But the big lesson here is as a non-technical founder, I did not understand how little I knew about technology and about how products are built. And I'm curious if you can relate to this, but it really, I thought our product was much farther along than it was. And as the CEO, that that accountability stops with me. You know, the buck stops with me. That's not the engineer's fault. It's my fault for not understanding it. So when I went and raised our first $75,000 in the fall of 2017, what I was telling the investors was what I believed, which was we've got a product. We're just about ready to start shipping. And we're ready to scale this thing. Your cash will enable us to do that. The reality was their cash enabled us to bring engineers full time so that we could actually really start building this thing. So you, so you needed $75,000 to build your first MVP. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. That's it. So so $75,000 to, to, for hundred percent of technology. And then you thought you were going to go to a dev agency or hire someone full time, or how are you thinking about so that? I thought, and I think the questions you're asking are really good ones that I should have asked myself back then. 
So, and I wish I had. So I thought $75,000. And the reason I took that amount is because it's the amount I was able to get from these early investors. So I and, thought, and who are these early investors? These are a couple of angels who now sit on our board and have been uh, probably the most, I, I got so lucky with them as our initial investors. The uh, retired executive from in the transportation industry and, and his wife, and she continues to work and brings companies public. And we were introduced to them through Arch Grants, which is a, it's a competition based out of St. Louis. Okay. So sort of a quintessential story about how you meet local affluent community members who want to support startups and get involved and diversify their portfolio a little bit. And it's sort of a match made in heaven. Got it. But, so university helps facilitate introductions to meet really rich people. And yeah. with a guy university. like you, witty guy, funny, good looking, you know, got a full set of hair on top. You, you just went out and I said, Hey, I, I need, I need $75,000. Cause I want to start a, a B2B platform that says, uh, shows wait times in the airport. And we're going to sell that data to, uh, an airport. What, exactly. what, what problem were you solving and how are you able to, because I imagine like they're also, you know, like you said, supporting local entrepreneurs, businesses, um, what problem or what story were you, were you selling to these people to, um, and then and what percentage of that do you think the investors um, were investing in versus supporting the local entrepreneur um, who's trying to start a tech business, regardless of whatever the problem it was? Great questions. So the problem we were trying to solve is is a big problem, and I continue to believe there's a substantial opportunity there. We were never quite able to get our technology accurate enough to capitalize on the opportunity, but there's a big opportunity there to provide this spatial analytics to airports and other venues. But to answer the part of your question that I think is most interesting, which is about what were the investors investing in, for them they said something to me that has stuck with me ever since that first meeting over you know a year and a half ago. They said, when we put aside money that we're gonna invest in a startup, we don't expect to ever see it again. They like to see it again, but they're very eyes wide open about how much of a long shot each early stage company is. And they were investing, I think, equal parts in me as the jockey on this horse, the opportunity. But I think the big third piece there is supporting the local St. Louis entrepreneurial ecosystem, like you said. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lesson here for folks that are listening, which is at the early stage, I'm thinking in a second, we're going to talk about you and your experience with larger venture capital. But when it comes to angel investors, there are many different reasons why people choose to get into angel investing. And rarely is it is the sole reason to get rich. Because they, if they have the money to angel invest, they're already fairly well off. And it means they also are pretty, pretty money smart in general. It's not a rule, but it's what, what the folks that I've taken investment from are pretty savvy. And they know that the odds of any one particular investment working out are fairly low, which is something that we as entrepreneurs have to be upfront about as well for ourselves. So when you're talking to angel investors or affluent individuals, understand what are the levers you can pull? What are they interested in? What moves the needle for them? It might not just be a big return. It might be supporting an entrepreneur who graduated from their university. It might be investing in a business that's working in an area, a market, or a vertical that they're familiar with or are interested in. 
or it might just be because they want to support the local ecosystem. So Carson. Yeah, you know, I, you know, that's that's an interesting concept because, um, but I, for the people listening on this podcast, I think it is important to be able to to confidently say what, how much money do you need to raise? Where do you want to go? And you need to ha- do that due diligence. If if you know it's going to cost you fifty thousand dollars to build your first MVP or five thousand, you need to know that. You need to know about any other costs associated with that marketing, any operational, and you need to build that out to tell them. And and you also, what's that going to get, and where is that going to go, right? And you, you you should be able to paint the opportunity you should as an entrepreneur you should know exactly or have an idea even though that it, it, it's wild and, and far-fetched yeah you, you're right that uh an angel if that's what we're calling them um they don't expect to see but if you're going into a conversation with that assumption then you might as you're just wasting your time um, because you you need to be able to to, to paint exactly uh, what that opportunity looks like. And yeah, they might not expect it, but what what they would expect is even though the odds are are not, you know, in the entrepreneur's favor to get ROI, but you, you should be able to communicate that um, pretty confidently. So for I, you, so what, me, yes. what does that opportunity look like? Um, what does the value of data? What is wait times? Where Where is that opportunity? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things you just said that are really good. The first is, and th- I want to make sure everyone who's listening hears this clearly. No one will invest if they can't see a clear path to success. They can't if they can't see the positive outcome, they're mm. not going to invest. People aren't interested in throwing away money. Investing in startups is a long shot, but they're trying to pick the winners. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. And so the second thing is just some questions you need to be able to answer before you're ready to pitch investors. How much money are you trying to raise? Why are you trying to raise that exact amount of money? What will you use it for? And what milestones will that allow you to hit that will move the business forward? And I think that's that's what Carson was just talking about is when you go into these conversations, it's not just tugging at the heartstrings. They're certainly developing a rapport and a relationship is important. They are making a decision that has an opportunity cost for them. They could be investing that money in the stock market. They could be investing it in another startup. So you be able to clearly articulate why this is a worthwhile investment and why this money now will make a difference is incredibly important. So Carson, I want to understand a little bit more because I've raised my money, $75,000 average check size from a bunch of affluent individuals, predominantly in Missouri, where I'm mm-hmm. based out. Mm-hmm. But I know that you recently went and raised a larger sum of money from a, a venture capital company that does this professionally, right? They have a portfolio of companies, very specific investment thesis. This is their focus. So can you talk to me a little bit first about the terms of the deal in terms of the amount they invested? Uh, and you don't have to get too much more specific than that, but sort of give us a frame for the amount of capital you were raising and who these people are. Yeah, we end up, uh, so from this, from this, this is our first institutional round of funding. We closed back in February and it was about a million and a half. And generally when we say institutional, just for everyone listening, there are, when I say angel investors, I refer to these, you know, individuals or couples that are wealthy and want to deploy some capital. Institutions are when we talk about venture capital and funds. We're talking about 
larger multi-million dollar funds where their whole job is to find promising startups at various stages and write checks, for instance, for a million and a half dollars, that can really move the needle and they take a far more active role with startups than say an angel investor does. Mm -hmm. So you raised a million and a half dollars from them and where did you meet them? How did you come across this venture capital firm? Um, pitching at an event in Chicago, um, investor event. My when I moved to Chicago, my full time job as the CEO was like fundraising, right? I mean, it's a full time job. So um, weekly weekly coffee dates with investors, opportunities to get in front of groups, um, and I I pitched in front of pitched in front of a group. Uh, one guy comes up after and goes, "Hey, I." I, I know a guy and they have a, uh, a, a sports tech fund. They're investing in youth sports, high schools. I'm not sure if it makes um, a whole lot of sense, but there might be an opportunity there. Um, and so I was like, yeah, absolutely. Would love, would love to have a conversation. Um, he set that up. I had a call and the, the guy prefaced the call by saying, um, I'm just going to let you know, Carson, um, that we have plans to do exactly what you are building from a mobile ordering um, standpoint. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, talk to me about that, right? Uh, you know, what are what are your plans look like? And um, their plans were what, and I, and I honestly thought they were the, 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 wrong, the wrong plan uh, to be successful. And uh, the thesis I had with FanFood and the brand that we were building with FanFood was um, fundamentally different. And that's the story I pitched with FanFood and why I felt FanFood was compelling. And a um, uh, conversation that should have been 20 minutes lasted an hour and a half. Um, and a couple weeks later, he's introducing me to his partners and month and a half later we closed around the funding so so hold on so let's back up there so you said that you you were pitching at an event in chicago and at the same time pretty consistently you were you said you were having coffee dates so who are these coffee dates with and how are you setting them up um linkedin valuable resource uh there's a ton of events going on i mean I'm in Chicago. The, the whole purpose of me going to Chicago is to be able to leverage resources and opportunities. I mean, I'm shooting a podcast in 1871, which is purported as the number one incubator in the entire world. So um, thought process being, if there's resources like this, um, you know, I should be able to figure out how to meet some pretty rich people. Um, I'm from so Peter. So you are LinkedIn DMing prospective investors. Yeah, that's one way. Absolutely. I, I mean, I was testing, I was testing everything. So um, I am a veteran or I'm, well, not veteran. I'm still serving in the army reserve. So I, there was a military community. There's a nonprofit, um, that helps and supports military veterans, helps them turn their ideas into businesses. It's felt pretty, pretty relevant to, to kind of get involved with, right. Uh, link up with the networks that, that you can, right. Uh, so I, I linked up with them, got some free resources and started meeting some people, um, our first angel investor, probably no surprise, he was a veteran, um, major army or Navy reserve uh, major um, who wrote a $15,000 check. Um, so for our, for us, our fundraising journey went um, bootstrapped. So a combination of savings um, and student loans to get us to a MVP. And then we did raise money from family and friends. 
And then that's when we started uh, raising money from angel investors. We did an equity crowdfunding campaign, which is kind of a new way to raise money. Um, How much did you raise through that, Carson? Uh, 125. Okay. Yep. Um, so we, I mean, we've raised money from from a, a whole bunch of people, but it was really validating to get your first, um, you know, angel check that you know you built up a relationship with. Went on a coffee date. You told your story. You told you know how much money you raise and what that's going to get. You know where that's going to get you and. Um, the stakes change when you start taking, you know, it's different because family and friends, it's, you know, it's family and friends. I mean, I, I would recommend if you guys, if, if anyone's serious about starting a business, um, you know, find a co-founder, um, don't do it by yourself, but find someone who's, who's bought into the, the vision that you are, that you're pursuing. Um, and I mean, obviously try to, try to build something as cheap as possible, but technology is expensive. The reality is it is. Um, so let's, okay, so hold on. So I want to jump in here. So a couple of things for the folks that are listening. One, Carson did a great job of leveraging the communities that he could join and be part of. And one connection led to the next. Second, he wasn't afraid to cold reach out to prospective investors. And it sounds like that was a pretty fruitful path forward for him. And I think this is really important is as a young entrepreneur or whatever your age entrepreneur is, you need to be willing to go to bat for your company and advocate for your company. And that looks like cold calling customers. And it also looks like cold calling people that you're going to ask for money. So yeah, we would, it was actually, so in Chicago, there's, there's VCs, right? Um, they have their own offices that you can Google. And I, I literally remember I, I walked in to every like probably 15 different offices. And I met with the receptionist and I just said, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And I would just love to, you know, carve out 30 minutes on a schedule right with with a partner associate analyst whatever um i got i, I set meetings meetings that way too so um and I'm sure the, the funny thing is you, you yeah the, the funny thing is you said fruitful so and we're talking about setting meetings as a, a kpi for success because um i i'll say that for every for every coffee day i, I probably needed i mean a lot. I mean, you got to be persistent, right? I mean, it's a sales job, but you're like selling yourself with not the best resume in the world. Um, so the it, it's common pause, to get more objections. Pause for one sec, because what you just said is oh. so important. It, fundraising is sales. And it, what you're selling is the opportunity. But just as much, like Carson said, you're selling yourself. Because when people invest, whether it's an angel or it's venture capital, they're investing in the opportunity and they're investing in the founder or founders. So when you're getting ready to fundraise, you need to steal yourself for a long sales cycle with plenty of rejections, just like you were selling your product. Yeah. And when, let me ask you this. When was the first time you wrote yourself a paycheck? Oh, it wasn't for... How long did it take? A year and a half of yep. working on the venture. 18 months, 18 months, yep. uh, and, and savings wiped them out. Student loans still paying them off, even though I was in the military and they helped cover some of my college. It's so I think there's like a common thing about what, like the true reality of like being an entrepreneur, but like for me, like I'm never going to bitch about not paying myself for, you know, 18 months. That's part, that's part of my story now. It's part of the brand, right? That's what we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, 
But at the time, I didn't really think too much of about it because I'm doing what I want, what I wanted to do. And the thought process being, and, 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 and I know the reality of uh, startups that are, you know, could be successful. So my thought process always was like, if there's a 1% chance that the company or business that I'm trying to build becomes successful, i.e. we sell, go public, um, whatever, then it's a 1%. Why not take that? You know what I mean? Like I'm, well, now I'm 20, I just turned 25. And that was my thought process. It's still my thought process today because I, you know, it, wouldn't it, like it, that's what like motivates me because it's like it, it would suck to look back in 10 years or 15 years and be like oh damn I, I go to a Cubs game and I pull out an app and I order concessions directly to my seat and I'm like that that could have been mine that, that should have been mine and I think like I would live and I know who I am I would live with regret for the rest of my life so it's like um why not you know what I mean? So 1% chance, I'm going to take it all day. Um, I know if I fail, you, there's always, you can always fall, you can always go back and get your MBA. For me, um, I can always go active duty in the military if I wanted to. There's, those opportunities will always be there. Um, so why, if, if, especially if you're young too, and I know this is like the Future Founders podcast, um, it's, it's kind of like why not, just kind of suck it up you know, <laughs> suck yeah, it up totally for a little agree. bit and just, just get it done. That you said that I want to dive into. The first is that is what motivates me too, is I do not want to live a life filled with regret and not shooting my shot. I know I'd regret it every day. Right. And I think especially folks that have the mentality and desire to be an entrepreneur, the last thing you want to do is see someone else that ran away with your idea successfully and you wonder what if. Mm -hmm. The other thing you said that I think is really poignant is that people view entrepreneurship as a high-risk uh, proposition. And the reality is, and whenever I go to lecture to a college class that does entrepreneurship about this, I really try to hammer this home. It is a, in my opinion, it's the best single investment you can make on yourself, even if you want to go into the corporate world later. Because the amount of responsibility you have to take on and the skills you develop and the story and personal brand you develop put you in a far superior position if you were to say, go rejoin the corporate path than someone who had just gotten an entry-level analyst position at Joe Schmlo Co., you know? Mm. And so this idea that even if my business disappeared tomorrow, my earning potential has skyrocketed because of this endeavor. The network I've developed, both the people that have invested and the ones that haven't, has the network you develop, the skills you develop. I mean, hopefully, <laughs> right? That's what we hope. Right. We hope. That's, that's what that's, that's what we tell ourselves to keep going. But that you know, right? If and we fail, you fail. Worked out. And if it does, oh, then it's game over. Yeah. I, I I'll be honest. You're a lot more optimistic than I am. <laughs> I think that maybe just means that you're a lot more realistic than I am. I mean, I try to. Um, so let's let's wrap up here. Last question for you. Now that you've taken investment, talk to me about how you maintain those positive relationships. 60 second lightning round, go. How I maintain positive relationships. Well, now that I'm- That I've invested in you. I mean, I'll tell you what, I'll be honest. I've, I used to, I used to do monthly updates with investors, but now I feel like it's, it's been so busy. I've been kind of, uh, um, 
not doing as well actually to to maintain those those relationships because I'm so focused on you know building out building out the business and I think there's updates that I can I can do you know automatically rather than having to like manually go in and type out these monthly update emails but definitely need to like get back in in the habit of doing it um our larger investors um you know we have bi-weekly calls we have a board meeting every quarter um that you know they get the the status updates um that way uh our our investors i mean so we're, we're very our, our investor group from our institution around is very hands-on they they're taking a lot of uh they're taking accounting over for us a lot of our hr really assisting with hiring um sales and business development they literally hired someone full-time to help us with our go-to-market strategy so our our investors are like very very hands-on um and i would say like maintaining your 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 relationship is just just uh you know, keeping them in the loop. Some of our largest angel investors, like I'll, I'll, I'll grab coffee or dinner. Or I'll go out with them, um, you know, on a monthly, on a monthly basis. It's just kind of just to catch up. Yep. No, I, and I do the exact same thing with our, whenever our, our investors are in town or they're nearby, I try to get together with them for a meal mm-hmm. or, uh, at the very least I'm sending out emails, you know, if not every month and every couple months, I agree though. I think that I also have lost focus a little bit about, I used to be religious about sending out these monthly emails and then all of a sudden you start to dive into the weeds of the business. And for me, at least I've forgotten about, you know, taking the time to set that communication up. Mm -hmm. So it becomes much more impromptu, like you said, whenever they're in town or whenever Mm -hmm. it's convenient. But the one thing I want to highlight maybe as a parting thought uh, on my end, at least is that what you said about your institutional investor taking over all these functions and really offering support, I think is really important for listeners to think about, which is that when someone invests, they're not necessarily just investing their money. Depending on who's investing, they might be investing access to their network. They might be investing money, and then it also comes with tons of hands-on support, like you're talking about. Some of our investors, although they're not institutional, they're individual. One of them has a background in accounting, so he's helped us with rigorous financial modeling. Another person is a retired attorney, and he's helping us now with pursuing patent protection and trademark protection. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a fantastic point. And so just this idea of when people start to support you, either invest or, you know, they're in your corner, think about how you can take advantage of them. They should. Absolutely. I mean, I can't I can't say that enough, too, because um, like from from our family and friends around. Yeah. Like my dad, you know, gave me two thousand bucks on a convertible note round. And that's that's great and everything, but he gave his time. He also built and exited two software companies, and it's his time that helped take our technology platform to the next level, not necessarily the money. Um, there was a point in time when we were angel fundraising, and we are we literally hit zero dollars in our bank account, and this investor came on knowing that. Um, funded us for the next three months, which allowed us to get our, you know, VC funding. And he gave us that investment, but he also came in one day a week and and helped out to get the business or help our, our startup get to where we, you know, need to go. So that should be an expectation whenever you're fundraising, even if it's, even if it's family and friends, angels, it's not only it's, and you should be, you should be asking them for that help too. Um, what, 
regardless of what it is, because there's there's no shortage of tasks to complete at a at a startup level. So <laughs> that's definitely true. But um, but but uh, but, uh I think uh, we're kind of coming up coming up to the uh, end of the of the track. So uh, track. <laughs> <laughs> the track jesus <laughs> um no this is fun um adam let's uh let's go grab some beers this weekend and um uh, yeah i i appreciate every right. everyone listening in if you guys have questions comments concerns uh my emails carson at fanfoodapp.com you can shoot me a note there uh you can shoot me uh, a note on linkedin text whatever um and Adam, how can how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, so feel free to shoot over. If you're interested in investing, you can reach me at adam at checktheq.com. Please don't send in any more Adam Carson Future Founders fan fiction. We got a lot of submissions last week. <laughs> if you insist on submitting it, you can send it to Carson at fanfoodapp.com. <laughs> but again, we'd really like you to keep it more professional in the emails. <laughs> Carson and I will talk to you guys next week. As always, we'll be discussing the influence of cartoon characters from the 50s and 60s in modern logo and branding reconstruction, which actually ties in nicely with the fan fiction you guys have been sending. So until next time, Adam out. Carson, great to talk to you as always. Great to talk to you. Check it out. The Future Founders podcast is produced by the Future Founders team. As a reminder, be sure to leave feedback about your experience with us today in our survey at the bottom of the ePass. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.